Hello, book lovers, and welcome to March's instalment of the Vintage Podcast. This month, we're taking a tour of Scottish-inspired books. I'm Alex Clark and I'm here with my co-host Will Rycroft to explore the influences of the Scottish landscape on our books, from a family's search for home on a remote Scottish island, to a father and son's walk along the borderlands between England and Scotland, to the real-life story of a serial killer over one night on the busy streets of 1950s Glasgow. Now, Will, yes, not content with that, you have also created a reading list. I have. I, I thought I'd gather together some sort of essential Scottish reading. So on the Vintage website, you'll find it there, seven Scottish classics that you must read, including, of course, my favourite, John Burnside. He's on there. Uh, his debut novel, The Dumb House. Uh, but there's a very wide range of stuff there. We've got uh, Morven Caller by Alan Warner. don't know if you've read that. Fantastic, dark, strange book. And there's... Is it Alan Warner's first book? I think it might be, you know. Mm. Yeah, I think it might be his debut. So that's, yeah, two debuts on the list. The Trick is to Keep Breathing by Janice Galloway, which is another book which I know has got lots and lots of fans out there. A.L. Kennedy, of course, her novel Paradise. Swing, Hammer, Swing by Jeff Torrington. There's Waverley, there's Whiskey Galore, there's all sorts there. The Scottish literature, of course, is, is rich. And it's very rich here, I must say. Yes. Um, because you also, obviously, publish Irvin Welsh. Yes. A.L. Kennedy. Mm. All sorts. All sorts. There's a good Celtic representation here within vintage. This puts us really, takes us back really, doesn't it, to the moment when there was an explosion Mm. in contemporary modern Scottish literature. And I suppose Irvin was one of the people who really heralded that. James Kelman, of Mm. course, as well. Alison Kennedy. I mean, it, it was really very startling and original and new and vibrant when it first started, wasn't it? Absolutely. I think we should probably do a little hat tip here to, to the editor, Robin Robertson, who, who here at Vintage has been a huge champion of, of Scottish writers. Of also Scottish. And, uh, of course, also Scottish. And, and Irish writers too, you know, and just sort of, obviously, he has a great knowledge about that, the, the, the authors out there. But as you say, that big explosion, huge energy. I remember reading Trainspotting for the first time, and it was quite soon after its initial publication, Written in dial- in a dialect, you know, that amazing voice on the page. It was unlike anything I think I'd read before. So very, very exciting. It was about, in many ways, that, that whole explosion, um, the idea of just accepting non-standard English yeah. um, on the page, wasn't it? I mean, it was yeah. just about saying, OK, I'm going to read this as an English person, potentially even as a Scottish person, yeah. and not immediately be able to get the sense of what's going on. I'm going to have to orient myself yeah. in a totally new linguistic framework. Like anybody who has come out of the station at Glasgow, it takes you a while to tune your ear in and to understand exactly what's being said. And also, be under no doubt when you go to Scotland, it's a different country. It is, of course, attached, but it's a very, very different place culturally, uh, you know, socially. And, and that's one of the reasons why I love going there, because it, it does feel like you've actually gone somewhere else. Well, we are now going to really go somewhere else. What better place to start our Scottish podcast than with Annalena McAfee, whose novel Haim is all about that search for the different place. Haim, which is the Scottish word for home, is a literary detective story in which Mary MacPhail dismantles her life in New York and moves with her nine-year-old daughter Agnes to the remote Scottish island of Fasqueray. 
Mary has been commissioned to write a biography of the late bard of Fasqueray, Grigor McWatt, a cantankerous poet with an international reputation. Annalena joins us now to shed light on this knotty tale. Thank you so much for coming in today, Annalena. Tell us all about Haim, which is your second novel. Now, just totally correct me if you will. Am I saying it correctly? Yes, you are. Good. Tell us what Haim is, the word first and then the book. Well, Haim is the Scots word for home, a place of refuge, the sanctuary, the place where we like to be, where no one's against us. The book is set on a fictional island in the Hebrides, which has one famous inhabitant who was the poet, bard of Fasqueray, Grigor McWatt, who spent many years chronicling the natural history, the, um, the history and folklore of the island. And he has died, and a young cu- Canadian curator has come over to set up a museum in his honour and to write his biography. Basically, there are three characters in the book. Grigor McWatt, his story runs in parallel with Mary MacPhail. Um, the young curator marries a single mother with her daughter Agnes. And the island itself, I like to see as a character too. It very much is, isn't it? And I must say, I have a weakness, as do many people, I think, for books that start with maps. Ah, yes. And this start, it's a very, very beautiful book, amazing woodcut illustration on the front, but then you open it and here is the map of this island. How much fun was it just mapping all that out, mapping your territory out? Well, it's 8,000 years of history, but I did maps for every decade from 1945 to 2016. And did they festoon your study as you as you wrote? Yes, yes, it was a, a landfill site of maps, my study. <laughs> it was terrible. But yes, I really enjoyed that sort of the patina of time and the changes in terms of people, families, their shifting histories. So yeah, maps were very important and it was wonderful to have Joe McLaren, who did the cover, sort of make my scrappy maps into works of art. You couldn't have not had somebody with a, a Celtic name. Yes, I was very glad it was Joe McLaren. <laughs> yes. um, I can't help noticing, although they are extremely different books, but your first novel, The Spoiler, also has someone going to interview to write the life of um, an august and elderly figure. Yes, that's spooky, isn't it? Um, probably the result of spending 30-plus years in newspaper journalism and doing a lot of interviews myself in that time. Although in the case of Haim... The subject is actually dead. Yes. So, so it's a kind of posthumous exhumation of his life using his letters and all sorts of written material that she has to investigate. But, but of course it takes us to that subject of kind of universal fascination, which is the sort of the biographer's tale. Is it better if your subject is alive or dead? Yes, I wonder. There's, possible, uh, there's the possibility of dissembling both ways, really, what, what sort of trace he leaves of his earlier life. I mean, there are curious gaps that she has to try and fill, which is the sort of narrative thrust. Another thing that I felt immediately drawn to is this sort of trope, I suppose, of literature. A person arriving somewhere strange from a completely different environment, in this case, New York, and Mary just arrives on an island, totally strange, feels that she may have made a terrible mistake, is at a crossroads in her life, her relationship has sort of fallen apart, really. That idea of just plunging a stranger into a completely unknown and possibly inhospitable milieu, that's always fascinating for a novelist, isn't it? 
Yes. I did give her some kind of notional connection to the island. So she is like many Canadians of Scots descent. In fact, she's a first-generation Scot and was born in Scotland, but her parents emigrated to Canada. And her grandfather was actually from this island. And in a way, going to the island, it's not just you know unknown territory. There is a kind of abstract connection with this place, which leads her to reflect on identity, really, the sense of belonging. She wants to belong, but she feels like an outsider. Tell us about your own connection with that abstract place, as it were, because this is a book that is really, really close to your heart, isn't it? Both my parents were Scots. My father was Glasgow Irish, my mother was Scots, uh, Glaswegian. Um, I was conceived in Glasgow, apparently. My mother told me in her disinhibited old age. But we we spent every holiday in in Glasgow, actually. And my brother and I would be packed off on a coach the last day of school, overnight, and be met at the bus station by our aunt. And most of our, well, all of our extended family are in, in Scotland, apart from a small wing in Ireland. And my first language was Scots. Really? Yes, yes. So... Going to school in North London, a convent school, the first day I was asked to say a nursery rhyme, recite a nursery rhyme, and I did. And it's a little-known rhyme south of the border called We Chuki Bardi, Lo 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 sitting on the windy soul. The windy soul began to crack. We Chuki Bardi, quack, quack, quack. The nuns, possibly understandably, sent me for emergency elocution lessons the result of which you hear. Um, my aunt Sophie recalls being very amused, visiting us in London, going to school in the morning with Scots accents and coming home in the evening with English accents. How does that feel, that sort of moment of kind of, I suppose, just deracination in a way? You are kind of separated from your origin. I remember Andrew O'Hagan once saying to me, there's a sort of clan of the kind of O's, you know, the O'Briens and the yeah. O'Hagans, and there's that moment where you sort of get off the bus in the big city and you're altered in a way. You are separate from your roots. Is that the same sort of thing? For you? Yes, and it's also about class too, of mm. course. You feel not at home in either. And as a speaker, you feel a sense of authenticity. So when I'm talking to Scots, I, I feel embarrassed about my long A's and, you know, pretentious. When I'm talking to English, I have to curb sometimes. For instance, I still, you know, if one talks about the alphabet, J in Scots is jai and I automatically say jai so I have to trip myself up and you know remind myself of my elocution lessons so it, yeah, it leads to a sense of um, inauthenticity. In terms of Scots identity which is obviously continuingly contentious subject with periodic eruptions as, as indeed now, Scots identity as a mainland and also as the islands that surround it. How, I mean, it seems very, very complex to someone who is not Scottish. Does it feel like that to you? Does it feel like there are these different places with different identities? Yes. What's been interesting to me over the years has been the sort of growing cultural confidence of Scotland. It's been marvellous to see and justifiably, but there's an area of um, contention about language. So making this case for Scots to be an official language. And in fact, it has been recognised, I believe, by Europe as a minority language. The difficulty is, from the opposing point of view, that Scots, there are many dialects. Mm. So Lallans of the West, the Borders, 
the insular dialects of, of Shetland and Orkney, and the northeast, the Doric, which is w- wonderful with sort of Norwegian influences. When Hugh MacDermott was writing his poetry, he amalgamated the dialects and, and called it synthetic Scots in an approving way. But of course, the true distinctive language of Scotland is Gaelic, which is spoken by about 57,000 people. It's retreated to the fringes of the, the northwest, the islands, partly as a result of a deliberate political campaign. And the, there's a revival going on at the moment. I'm, I'm studying Gaelic You're at learning. the moment. Yeah, yes. I mean, it's certainly a, a very different situation than, for example, in Wales, where you can travel to many, virtually all of Wales and you will encounter people who will speak Welsh among each other absolutely naturally, yes. inclu- including the younger generations. Yeah. And that's a very different picture, isn't it? Well, in Scotland, I mean, there, there is a revival and actually... Glasgow is one of the places where Gaelic is spoken. There are Gaelic schools and, of course, the Gaelic street signs, station signs, which, again, causes some contention because on the east, for instance, they say this was never a a Gaelic-speaking area. We don't want this. So, yeah, language is political. To return to Haim, or to return Haim, tell us a little bit more about Grigor McWatt, because he turns out, of course, over the course of this very sort of complex, multi-stranded book, to be so much more than he might appear at the beginning. And without spoilers, just tell us a little bit about some of the things that he... Well, he he, he presents as a kind of misogynist loner who sets up home in an abandoned croft at the end of the Second World War after doing time in the SOE, Special Operations Executive, as a commando, really. They had commando training schools in, in a lot of the northwest of Scotland, and there was one on Fasqueray. So he sets up home in this croft and makes it his business to record the history of the island and to make his observations about nature and about culture there. He occasionally has breakouts in the local pub, the Finverinity Inn, he now and again travels to Edinburgh where he hangs out with Hugh McDermott and the Rose Street poets. He's a nationalist. Like Hugh McDermott, he lists his chief hobby as anglophobia. He gets his fame and fortune not from the poetry that he spends his time writing. What he does is he translates some of the best-known English poems, English and Irish poems, into Scots as he says, reclaiming them. It's a kind of land land right, staking his claim, staking the Scots' claim to the best of world literature. But he actually earns his fame and fortune from a song he writes on the back of a cigarette packet in the late 40s, a kind of protest song which is recorded by everybody from Kenneth McKellar, Andy Stewart... Bob Dylan, Susan Boyle, and so that's how... The full range. The full range, yes. <laughs> now, I'm very pleased that we segue neatly into music now. You may not remember this, but many, many years ago, we bumped into each other at a folk concert. Did we? And, I mean, this is a long time ago. I remember Liam Clancy, now dead, oh. was playing there, and I think Mary Hopkin. It was at the Bloomsbury Theatre. Yes, that's absolutely right. And I can remember what you said to me. You may not, you may wish this not to be public. Oh my goodness! But I said, "Gosh, hello, fancy seeing you here," and you said, "Folk music—it's my secret shame." (laughs) 
or my guilty secret or something like that, my guilty pleasure. Of course, it's not really a guilty pleasure. No. no it? We're absolutely at the cutting edge of hipdom, of course. Leonid but tell, tell me about your fondness for folk music and about how it informs this book. Well, yes, it, it actually goes back to being a child and going to stay with our aunt in, in the east of Glasgow. She was, she's my father's sister. She was actually born in Ireland, but lived in Scotland. And she had the most fantastic collection of records, vinyl, uh, LPs, Irish rebel songs and ballads. And the Clancy Brothers were very big. The Clancy Brothers and the Wolf Tones. And my brother and I would... Well, we still, you, you, my brother was at that concert. We're still completely hooked on folk. And that's been interesting to see that development. And, and Scottish and Irish folk, too. It exists in this book, doesn't it? It exists there is in this book. in this book. Yes, well, I, I wrote the words for Grigga McWatt's song, obviously. At the end of the book, I felt I haven't really let this go. So I sat at the piano and I wrote the music and sent them the music as well to add. And then a friend in Glasgow who is a musician said, why don't we record it? So we recorded it. He sings and plays and his band, the Corellas, play the music. And I play the tin whistle. My brother Con, the brother you met at the folk, <laughs> Liam Clancy's concert, he sings backing vocals with my fireman cousin, Alex, and my other cousin, my IT cousin, Nick, Glaswegians. It was an extremely enjoyable thing to do, and of course, finally, to get to join a band. Well, I was going to say, so 30 years as a journalist, yes, a renaissance as a novelist, and then you think, oh, I'm going to be in a band now. Yeah. <laughs> Why not? It's such fun. <laughs> Actually, the bass player is a great guy. David, he has like a lot of old folk players, I mean, long standing folk musicians. It's a long ponytail and um, very hip exterior. He's actually a Church of Scotland minister. So he has it, he has the real portfolio career, yes. we might say. Yes. Well, I am delighted to say, with my other hat on, as um, as somebody who organises the Bath Festival, that you are going to come to Bath in May and perform, as well as talking about the uh, Yes, book. I think we are. Yes, I believe we are. Yes, we up. have it in black and white now. Oh, God. <laughs> um, but we also have, have your, your music available for our podcast listeners to listen to. Um, thank you so much, Annalena. That was, that was just fascinating. Winds and day and worst Stormy seas was up Spite lush and rain And England's shame We're coming home Here Joining us next is MP and travel writer Rory Stewart. In his latest book, The Marches, he traverses the borderlands between England and Scotland, musing on history, memory and landscape. His father Brian taught Rory how to walk and walked with him on journeys from Iran to Malaysia. And now they've chosen to do their final walk together along the Marches, the frontier that divides their two countries, Scotland and England. Rory was born in Hong Kong in 1973, and after a brief period in the army, he joined the Foreign Office, serving in Indonesia and the Balkans. 
His books have been awarded several prizes, including the Ondaatje Prize of the Royal Society of Literature. He is now the Member of Parliament for Penrith and the Border. Rory, thank you so much for joining us on the Vintage Podcast. Um, We have a distinctly Scottish flavour to this month's podcast, and I wanted to talk, first of all, a bit about Scottish identity. Uh, Maybe we could start with your father, because, as you say in your book, he he very much had a a Scottish identity. He was a big fan of wearing tartan, for example. So my, my father was somebody born in 1922, and he never stepped foot in England until he was 17. He served in a Scottish regiment. He continued throughout his life as an old man to remain swathed in tartan. He would have porridge for breakfast every morning. He insisted on eating haggis three times a week. He sat there pondering Gallic dictionaries. But he did it all with an enormous exuberant sense of fun. He didn't take any of it very seriously. If you pushed him, he would suddenly say, actually, I'm not really Scottish, I'm Irish, or he would accuse Scottish clan chiefs of really being French. Basically, he thought national identity was something to revel in and enjoy, and on that he was uh, maybe more of a early 20th century Scot, Mm. somebody drawing on Walter Scott for his tartan, but probably also drawing on Glasgow musicals from the 1920s for his general attitude to Scottishness. With, uh, I think particularly at the moment, there is this thing about Scottish identity. We're living in a period where there will be possibly a, a second independence referendum in a couple of years' time. The idea of independence is, is sort of more in the public consciousness now than ever. And I wondered how you felt about that your, yourself as a family. You, of course, have inhabited that, that area between Scotland and England, the sort of the borders area, which has its own distinct sort of personality. I wondered how you felt about maybe telling us more about that and and also about the sort of the differences between England and Scotland now? Well, I I think there are a couple of things there. I mean, firstly, I think from my father's point of view, he would see Scottish independence and Scottish nationalism as a reductive, rigid, slightly humorless force that wasn't alive to all the exuberant and, he would think, almost comic possibilities of being both Scottish and British. Mm. So he had a much more expansive, much more anarchic sense of his identity. And and one of the things I think that always worried him about Scottish nationalism was the sense that he felt that Scottish nationalists were not very good at laughing at themselves. (laughs) They they took their identity terribly, terribly seriously. I think for myself as somebody living on the border, I'm very, very conscious, of course, in my daily life of the fact that that whole zone stretching from the lowlands of Scotland into the uplands of England is geologically a single place historically a single place, culturally a single place. For 700 years between the departure of the Romans and the early Middle Ages, in fact, there were kingdoms there, quite independent from the kingdoms of southern England or northern Scotland. And still today, you feel in every aspect of life that the connections between a sheep farmer in upland England and a sheep farmer in lowland Scotland are much stronger than their connections to the highlands of Scotland or southern England. Mm. But it's also true that particularly in the last 40, 50 years, the border has taken on a new significance, not because it actually exists on the ground. When you walk, as I did, I crossed the border, I think, eight times back and forth on a 650-mile walk. Hmm. You don't see it. It's impossible to detect where the border is. There's no fence line. There's no 
no sense that one bit of sour, wet grass changes to another. But over the last 40, 50 years, people have begun to emphasise their Scottishness against the Englishness. Mm. And that very artificial, almost invisible border has taken on a, a reality. It's very interesting that, I mean, borders by their very definition are artificial for the most part. And again, we're living in through, through a period where in other parts of the world, the idea of erecting walls, for example, in America, you know, in, in order to enforce a border is, is becoming more and more important. I always had this feeling that if people could just go up into space and, and look down on Earth, you would see how absurd the idea is of countries' borders, because, of course, you don't see them from that far away. And as you say, the, the difference between a piece of grass in the, between those two countries, there, there is no real difference. Why do you think it is that people are so keen at the moment to, to enforce borders or to enforce the idea of different nationalities? Well, I think one of the things I learnt on the walk is that there are 10,000 different answers to the question of why people feel they're Scottish nationalists. At first, I thought it might be easy to discover that they shared a common set, for example, of historical myths. They might be excited by Braveheart or Bannockburn. But in reality, I found very few people talked about that kind of history. Mm. And in fact, they would often say, Scottish nationalists would often say, oh, I know that Braveheart is, is a fantasy. It's not true. Often what they were talking about is a sense of exclusion from Westminster or England, often in the very recent past. So often the things they were complaining about were things that had happened, for example, in the early 1990s. And in the end, it wasn't really, I felt, nationalism in the traditional sense. It wasn't people talking about history or ethnicity. It was much more politics that the Scottish National Party had inherited the depth of the Labour Party in Scotland, and in a very, very remarkable way. I mean, essentially, shortly after my walk, all these Labour MPs that I stayed with on the walk lost their seats, mm. seats that the Labour Party had held for, for almost a century. And so being anti-English is a way of expressing a particular type of political ideology. It's views on nuclear weapons, views on the welfare state, views on land ownership, views on equality, which really find their roots not in anything particularly distinctive Scottish, but in movements, socialist movements, that sprung up across Europe and the United States uh, from the beginning of the 20th century onwards. Hmm. Let's go back to the, the walk itself, walking along Hadrian's Wall uh, with your father. I wonder if we could talk a little bit about sort of the relationship you have with your father because it was a very, very close relationship, wasn't it? He was a very affectionate father, but you were separated by a, a, a couple of generations, really, because he was 50 when you were born, is that right? Yeah, my father was 50 when I was born, so he'd fought in the Second World War. And, of course, when we were walking, I was 40 and he was almost 90. Mm. So the walk itself was challenged by this. So he was this incredibly vigorous man who took huge pride in being very active and outdoorsy and walking. But the reality was, of course, that almost 90, it was very difficult for him mm. to walk uh, even quite short distances. I mean, we discovered that a few hundred yards would tire him. So in effect, what happened is we would have breakfast in the morning and then dinner in the evening, and he would take a car between the two stops. It was also wonderful for me because it gave me a very, very extended period of interviewing him. Not always successfully. He had been a 
intelligence officer, and I was could detect that he'd been very well trained in resistance to interrogation. So, <laughs> he, although he was very voluble, very very chatty man, tell endless stories. They often revealed surprisingly little. So I'd end up at these obscure moments where I'd realise certain phrases that I'd heard again and again over thirty years. So I'd say, "What's your father like, Daddy?" And he'd say, "Oh, you know, a quiet." Good-looking man, always reading the newspaper, and I realised that that set phrase was all that I'd ever got out of him, and that it told me almost nothing about who my grandfather had been. I wonder, also, just very briefly, we touch on on the idea of walking. Uh, you know, we live in a modern era where people will take an Uber uh, sooner than anything else, or you know, jump on public transport. Um, have we sort of forgotten about how good it feels and how? nourishing it can be spiritually to take a good long walk in the countryside and actually lift your head up off the smartphone screen and look around you at the world? Well, there's nothing, I think, in my own life that I find more exciting and satisfying than walking. I I mean, every day I manage to go out for a walk in Cumbria, I come back and and say to my family, why didn't I do that the day before? I mean, I, I just can't understand why I don't do it all the time. Yeah. I was happier, healthier, stronger when I did this 21-month walk across Asia. I walked across uh, Iran, Afghanistan, Pakistan, India, and Nepal, walking about 25 miles a day than I've ever been at any other time in my life. I like the fact that, as you say, you can't put your head in a smart screen. You can't read a book. You're forced to, in the end, acknowledge your own thoughts, acknowledge the landscape. So it has a profound meditative impact. Although not all the time. I mean, the, the joke of it for me is that that's true maybe for about an hour a day. The other seven hours a day, I'm frequently grumbling, worried that I'm getting a blister, getting slightly lost, being hypochondriac about my knee. Um, so it's... Um, no, but it, I, I still can't think of anything more fulfilling or satisfying. It's an odd thing to do, though, in Britain. It's easier in a country like Afghanistan where there are very few cars and everybody else is walking and there are many, many people out in the fields and where you feel walking really is bringing you into the rhythm of everybody else's life. In Britain, uh, walking particularly through cities and along roads, you're pushing against the rhythm of everybody else's life. Mm. And so walking in Britain can feel strangely isolating, whereas in somewhere like Afghanistan, it really makes you feel that it, it, it's embracing, it's integrating you into the surrounding landscape and communities. Oh, that's very interesting. That's, that, that's, that's a very different cultural uh, aspect of walking, which I hadn't really considered. I, I see what you mean. Uh, I think that, as you say, it can be quite isolating in the UK, but you get, do get that chance to, to look around at how beautiful <laughs> the UK actually is when you take the time to actually look at it. I mean, you forget that. It's often when you come back from somewhere else and you realise just how green it is, for example. Well, it's staggeringly beautiful. Staggeringly beautiful. I mean, I think the the sense that I could walk out of the back of my cottage in Cumbria and not see another house for seven hours walk and feel ridgeline after ridgeline, lake after lake opening up beneath me as I continue is extraordinary. But I also think there is a sad undertone to the British landscape, which is the sense that it's increasingly reverting to wilderness, that it's increasingly depopulated, that there are fewer and fewer farmers, uh, there are fewer and fewer people out in the landscape. Mm. And in some ways, you are looking at a landscape which has hardly existed in Britain for two and a half or 3,000 years, uh, a landscape where increasingly the uplands of Cumbria, which were densely stocked with sheep and now no longer, 
where there are no longer shepherds to be seen and where you're increasingly walking through open patches of, of, of bog, of upland grass and heath, and it's becoming lonelier. It makes you want to go out there and populate it after reading your book, so I feel encouraged to, to pick up my own walking stick and get out there. Uh, Rory, thank you so much for, for telling us more about the marches. It was really good to speak to you. Thank you again. For our final Scottish-inspired book, we're going to take the podcast out of the studio. I'm going to head up to the streets of Glasgow to speak to Denise Miner to track the movements of a real-life serial killer on one night in 1957. So I'm here on the streets of Glasgow with Denise Miner, author of The Long Drop. Denise, thank you for... Well, this is your hometown, really, isn't it? It is, yeah. Well, I moved here from London when I was about 19 or 20, and, uh, and I've been here ever since, and I kind of came here accidentally and didn't really want to stay because I remembered it as a very black, dirty, slightly scary town. Mm. But it had changed fundamentally in the time that I'd been away. So uh, when I came back, I was just fell in love with it. I just thought it was absolutely beautiful and completely undiscovered. Mm. That sort of change in the city is very important to your book because it's set in 1957 and 58, when, of course, Glasgow was a completely different city. Could you tell us a little bit about just how different it was? It was completely different. We had the highest concentration of heads per capita in the world, I think, at that point. Um, you know, there was like 12 to a single end. I mean, it was unbelievable, the density of population in Glasgow. So um, at that time, they started knocking Glasgow down and they built all the high-rise flats and they built all the estates on the outskirts for people to live in. And, you know, lots of the streets that the story is set in aren't even there anymore. Mm. Um, and... The atmosphere of the city is completely different as well. And we complain about high-rises, which are now being knocked down for a new generation of building. But actually, compared to the housing, people forget what the housing was like. Yeah. I, I know people who lived in the Gorbals when they were knocking it down, and the rats were so bad, they had to hang their food in a shopping bag on the pulley to stop the rats getting to it. And when you tell that to a glass region, they always say the rats could get at that. And yes, it wasn't a very good plan, but it was better than just leaving out. But it was, I mean, it was really terrible, and it was all quite soft sandstone. It was all jerry-built, it was thrown up. You could really kick your way through a lot of the walls because they were very crumbly, mm. you know, and uh, um, there were no bathrooms, there was, there was hardly any cooking facilities. It was really terrible. You've mentioned there about rats. There's a great description. You describe several bars and pubs and dives uh, through the course of the book. And in fact, there's a discussion about which might be the roughest one they're in. And there's a discussion of sawdust on the floor and rats running around the tables. We don't really have anything like that anymore, do we? Is that a good thing or a bad thing? I well, mean, I mean, pubs used to be a place that really bad people went to. I mean, they weren't they weren't wine bars. I remember wine bars coming in, and that was a real bizarre concept. It was like a theme pub. Um, <laughs> But still, pubs were quite rough. I remember a place called Brian's Bar, which was voted the dirtiest bar in Glasgow. And my friend was driving past and she saw a woman screaming and running out. She thought there'd been a murder and actually she was chased by a rat. <laughs> so it's not that far away in living memory. But pubs aren't really like that anymore. They're all owned by breweries. People invest a lot of money in them. Uh, but they really were cheap places where people could meet up and get off their faces. Mm. Uh, bars aren't really like that anymore. Not all of them. They cost too much to set up. That's true. You know, true. they do. So looking at your book, this is the story of, of William Watt and, and Peter Manuel. This is a, a, a real-life crime case. Now, of course, many people will know you're writing from writing fictional crime, but here we have real-life crime. Why did you want to tell this story now? Well, 
I've always been really interested in true crime and why crime writers are so keen to distinguish ourselves from true crime writers, why we are better than they are ethically, I've never understood that, um, why I read true crime with a different mindset, mm-hmm. um, with a very indulgent, I better not tell people I'm reading these books type of mindset, um, why are they always printed on cheap paper? There's something really deliciously transgressive about true crime. Mm. And at the same time, some of the most profound books I've ever read have been true crime. And I'm not talking about the classics. I'm talking about quite cheap true crime ghost written by good writers. Yeah. Actually, beautiful sentence structure, well put together with subtexts. Like, I hate this gangster that I'm being made to write a book about. <laughs> or, you know, um, these are very, very bad, out-of-control, chaotic people but I've been paid to write his autobiography. I really love those sorts of true crime books. And I think, um, snobbery aside, you can read... If, it depends how you read these books. So I always wanted to write a true crime book, and a friend of mine, Kester Aspen, wrote a book called um, The Killing of David Alualia, um, which is about the first black man ever killed in police custody in Britain. And it was a true crime book, and it was very, very, it was a very profound piece. I thought it was really beautiful, had real resonances. And I, and I, I was talking to him, and I was saying, I'm going to write a true crime book. So I was always looking for the right story to write it um, about. And uh, I love the conventions of true crime as well, because they do things like there's always a teaser at the end of a chapter you know she didn't know that she would never see her daughter again and then what and then the chapter <laughs> ends and you just got to read on to find out what happens um uh and little did he know he had the clue in his hand that would lead to the killer and you know quite cheap narrative techniques like that which i really love um so i was really drawn to the form and i was really drawn to the idea of writing a true crime book and I had a play on in Glasgow about this particular case and it was a commission and it was written in a bit of a panic. And at the end of the play, a lot of pensioners accosted me and said to me, you've told the story wrong. The story's much more complicated than that. Right. Which, uh, you know, I mean, it's a really bad thing in Glasgow to tell a story badly. It's a real crime because people can really tell stories here. Yeah. And uh, they said, no, you've told that wrong. It was much more complicated this is the story the city told and this is the official story was a bad man was caught and he was taken away and everybody was better because the bad man was caught and um, he was excised from our society uh, but actually it was much more complex than that and uh, lots of people had stories about things that happened after he was hung uh, lots of people had stories about circumstances around the killing for example the father of the family had gone fly fishing and he had taken the guard dog fly fishing with them mm. and if you know anything about fly fishing you don't take a dog fly fishing with yeah. you it's a very strange thing to do so um just from listening to people the story got more and more complex and had more and more layers the more i, th- I sort of talked to people and read about it and researched it we have to be very careful about spoiling any details yes. even though it is true crime and yeah. the facts that are out there but i'm interested there what you're saying about storytelling because that comes up in the book this idea of telling a story badly is the way that you can find out whether somebody's lying or telling the truth but also that idea of the myth that surrounds crimes that sort of as you say the idea of uh the bad man being put away because that's of course the easy story isn't it whereas the truth may be a slightly more complex and terrifying but i'm so interested in the serial crime story that it's quite a new story and is a very fixed narrative in our culture already Mm. and the, the serial killer story is a bad man is on the loose and he's working to his own agenda he wants to get caught the police catch him 
They walk into his house and find irrefutable evidence that it's him, and quite often they shoot him in an alley. Yeah. Now, when you start to take that apart, they're not really desperate to get caught. If you listen to any interviews with serial killers, they get caught because they've been going on so long because the police are rubbish. Right. Uh, the bad man often, very, very often, um, Peter Sutcliffe, um, Jimmy Savile, they usually have someone working with them at the beginning, mm-hmm. certainly. Um, the, you know, the story is so much more complex. There's a lot of collusion in the way people are picked off. The Yorkshire Ripper wasn't really... You know, they were much more concerned when he started killing women who weren't sex workers. Why are we so desperate for it to be one individual who's doing something wrong and not the way the city is run and not the way we deal with power and not the way we defer to money and not the way we question power structures? It's much. That's far too complicated. It's much better if it's just... Bad man with goat legs broke in and killed everybody. <laughs> now, despite the fact that your your novel is based on true crime, it's based on true facts, there is this gap in the story, isn't there? This sort of this, this evening that William Watt and Peter Manuel spent together, and I wonder whether because there was this gap, whether that was one of the things that really enticed you as a fiction writer to go, I've got to, I've got to fill, fill in the spaces. In. Yeah. Well, what happened was the two of them met. William Watt was arrested for the murder of his family, and he got out of prison. And he put out the word that he would pay money for information. And one of the people who came forward was the murderer. Mm. And they spent an evening in Glasgow together getting drunk for 11 hours, driving around Glasgow in 1957. Um, They got miraculous and they went to lots of places. But at one point in the evening, they left a pub and a 10-minute drive took them about two and a half hours. And I just couldn't bear it. And I was thinking, what do two drunk men do in the middle of the night in the 50s in Glasgow? And Peter Manuel called William Watt as a witness in the court case and he questioned him about this evening and he sort of hinted at various things and um, he asked him sort of leading questions but it's a series of non-secretors that don't really lead anywhere and uh, one of the things that he asks him about is have you ever been unfaithful to your wife? And he sort of hints that he has. So I think they probably went to see strippers or something like that. Or they've gone to see some bad women because Peter Manuel was friends with a lot of really crazy um, sex workers. One of them was called Big Mamie and she was famous for pulling her top off in the middle of pubs. Um, And uh, she had very, very badly bleached hair apparently. So I thought they probably went to see Big Mamie or somebody like that or Big Mamie's pals or a house party or something. Um, But then, but nobody knows. So I just filled it in with what fitted in with the story. Some of the events have been moved around, for example, someone gets thrown downstairs and that actually happened four days afterwards. Um, and some things have just been entirely fictionalised to try and make sense of the story. I don't want to tell readers or listeners any more about the book. Because okay. it is a, I think what I loved about reading it was that it was this fascinating blend of what I knew to be truth yeah. and your own intervention as an author to, to create to fill those gaps. Yeah. So a fascinating and a, a unique, I think, melding of, of true crime and... Lies. Crime and lies. <laughs> anyway, Denise, thank you so much for telling thank us more about much. it. Thank you very much. Thank you. And that's it for our tour of Scottish-inspired literature. I don't know which of us was Boswell and which was Johnson. Will. <laughs> I don't know. I, I, I'm going to go for... I'll go for Boswell. I'll be Boswell to your Johnson. I kind of like that. Now, yeah. you've, of course, in the course of this, been to Scotland. I haven't. So yeah. I really want to head for the Highlands. You must. You must. So that's what I'm, I'm going to do. Thank you to our guests this month, Annalena McAfee, Rory Stewart and Denise Minor. We'll be back next month. Uh, are you doing anything in the meantime? 
That was beautifully nudged. I told you to say that. I am doing something in the meantime. I was just wondering, uh, you know, out of nowhere, Alex, what, what are you doing between now well, and Well, I am organising an event which is centred on refugee experiences and tales of refugees themselves um, and other people who are also writers, performers, artists. It's called Shelter from the Storm, all proceeds going to Refugee Action. And you can find it by searching that name, Shelter from the Storm, on Eventbrite. It's on the 21st of March. Uh, at the Conway Hall in London, and I'd be so delighted if people would come. Oh, it looks amazing. Amazing, amazing array of authors, so yes, I'll be there. I think you might pop along too, might oh, yeah. perhaps with your handy recording device. Yes, yeah, I'll be there. In the meantime, if you like the Vintage Podcast, why not rate and review us? We're kind of saying don't rate and review us if you don't like us, aren't we? Yeah, yeah. it's yeah. sort of implicit. Don't bother. Yeah. Don't bother. Um, rate and review us on whatever platform you listen to podcasts on, and it will help us to reach more book lovers. Till next time. Bye. Bye.